This morning we're looking at this little piece in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I think Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 to 23 are incredibly interesting and really explain what is happening in the world around us. They really explain history for us. But let me talk to you for just a minute about the letter of Ephesians as a whole so you get some context here. The letter of Ephesians is what is sometimes called a circular letter. That is, it was intended for several churches, and so it is more general and less specific than a lot of Paul's other letters. In several of Paul's letters, like say in 1 Corinthians, or in Galatians, or in the pastoral epistles, Paul is dealing with local problems in particular churches. So it's very specific, and you really have to work at understanding something of the historical situation to really fully understand the letter. But there's not really any of that in Ephesians. There's very little personal information here where Paul greets particular people or instructs particular people that he knows. Uh, there are no specific problems that he seems to be dealing with in this letter. It's, it's a generalized letter for a very broad audience. In fact, there are one or two ancient manuscripts of this letter that do not have Uh, that that do not mention Ephesians in the opening verse. It's like that's been left blank so it can be filled in so this letter could be sent to other destinations. This letter was probably widely distributed uh, to many churches right when Paul wrote it. Maybe Ephesus was the most prominent church to receive this letter, but it seems to have been delivered to several churches. What that means is that unlike a lot of Paul's other letters, we don't have to try to reconstruct a historical situation very much in order to understand the letter. It's intended for a general audience, and so really we can jump right into it and just start reading it and have a pretty good idea of what Paul's talking about. Now, the opening chapter has three sections. There is a greeting in the first uh, two verses, Then there is a declaration of praise based on what God has done in Christ in verses 3 to 14. It's really one sentence in the Greek, one long, very complex sentence in the Greek where Paul is praising God, kind of an opening statement of praise, a call to worship, if you will. Then there is a prayer in verses 15 to 23. We read a little piece of that prayer this morning. Uh, And that is one of two prayers built into the latter. There is another prayer that comes at the end of chapter 3. And what's interesting is in chapter 4, Paul shifts from, you could say, the doctrine of the gospel to the implications of the gospel. So chapters 1 to 3 really lay out the doctrine of the gospel. Chapters 4 through 6 work out the application of the gospel to different aspects of our lives. And what that means, since you have this prayer in chapter 1 and another prayer at the end of chapter 3. What that means is that the doctrinal section of the letter is framed by prayer. It's framed by these two prayers. Chapters 1 and 3 have prayers that bracket the doctrinal section. Now this opening prayer in verses 15 to 23 I think really summarizes what Paul wants them and of course we could say what Paul wants us to understand. Just like I pray for you that you would understand the words I preach and come to know God through the words I preach. So here Paul is praying that they would understand the words he writes to them, that through the words he writes to them that they would come to know God more and more. Because that's really what this as a prayer is, that we would know God more and more and that we would know what God has done for us in Christ, what God has done for his church in Christ. 
He wants us to understand the gospel. And so you could say this prayer is really a summary of the gospel. I know we only read verses 20 to 23, but let me tell you what's going on in the verses just before. In verses 15 and 16, he thanks God. He thanks God for them. He thanks God for their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for one another. So he thanks God for their faith and for their love. Obviously, these are gifts God has given to them. That's why he's thanking God for them. In verse 17, he prays that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they will know Christ because Christ is God's revelation. He is the revelation of God's wisdom. In verse 18, he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that in their hearts they could see this truth. The result of this enlightenment, having an enlightened heart, is hope. It is hope for their future glory. And so those Christian cardinal virtues of faith, hope, and love are all woven into this prayer. Then he prays that they would know the power of God at work in us. He wants us to understand through this prayer that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has raised us from spiritual death in sin so that even now we share in Jesus' resurrection life. Of course, we'll share in a bodily resurrection at the last day, but already resurrection power is at work in us. We were dead in sins and trespasses. That's actually what he goes on to say in the at the beginning of the next chapter, but we have been made alive by this resurrection power at work in us. Indeed, Jesus is now seated in heavenly places, he goes on to say, reigning over all, head over all things. It's interesting, in a few verses, if you go into chapter 2, you find that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We participate in Christ's resurrection, we participate in his ascension and reign in some way. Those of us who are linked to Jesus, united to Jesus by faith. And then in verses 20 to 23, you really have the culmination of this prayer, and it really can be considered a summation of what this whole letter is about. These verses describe the newness of the good news. What is new about the world with the coming of Jesus? What has happened in the world? How is the world a different place now that Jesus has come? We talked about the gospel, the good news. Well, what's new about it? Well, here Paul in this prayer describes the new reality that Christ's resurrection and ascension have established in the creation. The heart of this prayer is that believers would live in accord with this new reality. That the old way of looking at reality, that they would throw that away and they would embrace this new way of looking at reality, this new state of affairs that God has brought about through Jesus. And this new reality can really be summed up in one sentence. Paul doesn't use it here, but uh, certainly it shows up in other places. This new reality can be summed up in one sentence, in three words, Jesus is Lord. That is the new reality and everything must adjust and accommodate to that new reality. Now understand for Paul to pray that these first century Christians would recognize that God has made Jesus head over all things, that God has put all things under his feet, Paul's prayer that these first century Christians would live in accord with that fact, with the fact that the risen and ascended Jesus is now Lord, that was really to go asking for trouble. Because the Roman Empire was built on that word Lord. The claim Caesar is Lord was really the glue that held the Roman Empire together. And of course Caesar's lordship was all about his power. 
the power of the emperor at work throughout his empire. The power of the empire was concentrated in this one man. In this one man, the emperor was considered to be a bridge between the human and divine realms. And that's why over time, more and more, the Roman emperors came to demand worship for themselves. And so for Paul to speak of Christ's lordship, of Christ's headship, to speak of Christ's power in this way, to speak of the man Jesus as the revelation of God, the one who truly links the heavenly and the earthly realms. Well, that was to go looking for trouble. Paul's prayer here is basically asking God to enable these Christians to reconstruct their view of reality and to see that the cosmos is not what Rome says it is. Rather, it is a Christian cosmos. The cosmos is what Jesus says it is. It is a cosmos ruled by Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. That's reality. That's the fact. That's truth. And so then Christian churches like this one in Ephesus would be a colony of Christ's kingdom planted in the world as a kind of beachhead, the first fruits of Christ's victory, the sign and proof of the great victory that Christ has won, the sign and proof that his kingdom is here. Churches like the one in Ephesus would serve as the tip of the spear, the leading edge of Christ's invasion and conquest as he reclaims his creation. Through his church, the Lord Jesus plants his flag and he claims his territory. He plants his flag and he says, this is mine. This planet is mine. And he begins to bring about the subduing and transforming of our world. He's reordering our world under his lordship. He's taking dominion over everything. Already earlier in chapter 1, Paul has talked about God's purpose to sum everything up in Christ, to put everything in its proper place under Christ's lordship, under Christ's headship. That's God's ultimate purpose for the creation. That's what's happening. All of this language about Christ being head and ruling over all things, uh, this language about Christ having everything under his feet, Christ being exalted above all. This is really language that comes out of the Old Testament. Everywhere when the Old Testament is promising this future kingdom, this future messianic kingdom, this is the kind of language it uses. In fact, I think it's really clear there are several psalms that are in the background of Paul's prayer here. In fact, you could say Paul's prayer is just picking up on David's prayers in the Psalms. He's taking David's language and he's weaving it into his own. And I think you could, you could say especially Psalms 2, 8, and 110 are very obviously uh, in Paul's mind here. Psalm 2 describes evil rulers, evil nations who would take their stand against God's anointed, against God's Christ, God's Messiah, but they will ultimately be displaced by Christ and the nations will become Christ's inheritance. The kings are warned to kiss the son lest he become angry. Christ is taking over your nation. You can even either surrender and have peace or you can fight him and be defeated. Those are your options according to Psalm 2 because Christ is head over all things. Psalm 8 describes Jesus as a new Adam with the whole world under his feet. He's been crowned with glory and honor, and he has dominion over all creation, so creation is under his feet, a crown is on his head. That's the picture you have, fits really well with what Paul says here about Jesus in Ephesians 1. Psalm 110 describes Jesus as the mighty priest king who gathers his people for battle. By the time you get to the end of Psalm 110, the, the bodies of, of Christ's enemies are piling up. It says he shatters kings in his day of battle. 
Psalm 110 opens telling us that Christ has been seated as the priest king at the right hand of God. He's seated at God's right hand and he will remain there until all of his enemies have been made into a footstool for his feet. Until everything is put in its proper place under his feet. That's just what Paul is mentioning here, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. See, for Paul to announce that Jesus is Lord, for Paul to say that his kingdom has broken into history, is to say the fulfillment of all those promises is happening now. All that God promised through the Psalms and through the prophets, it's now happening. But we also have to understand, in Paul's historical context, this was deeply subversive. Paul was ethnically a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen. And so he knew exactly what kind of trouble he was stirring up for these Ephesian Christians when he prays that they would know these truths, that all things have been put under the feet of the Lord Jesus. Paul knows the kind of trouble he's going to get them in because Paul's experienced some of that trouble himself. Paul says Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. In other words, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And to be a Christian is to believe that truth and it's to seek to live in accord with that reality. It's to bring your life and everything in your sphere of influence in line with that declaration of Christ's lordship. And no doubt Paul wanted them to understand this. He wanted them to understand that this has huge implications for every area of life. Christ is not only Lord of our personal lives, he's also Lord of the political realm. He's Lord over the educational realm, the economic realm, the sexual realm, the recreational realm. Everything, without exception, has been put under Jesus' feet. He rules the church. He rules the state. We can talk about separation of church and state as institutions, but both are under the authority of the Lord Jesus. He rules every aspect of life and culture. Nothing is outside of his reign. Paul prays that they would know Jesus is Lord. But the problem is they live in an empire where Caesar is Lord. Now, when two lords clash, what happens? War, obviously. When two lords clash, what happens? More specifically here, when Jesus' lordship and Caesar's claim to lordship come into conflict, what happens? Well, if you want to see what happens when these claims of lordship come into conflict, just read the book of Acts and read especially the history of the early church after the apostles, and you will see this play out. For example, in Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica, and he's been proclaiming the gospel, which means he's announcing that Jesus and his kingdom have come in history, that all things are being put under the feet of Jesus. And what happens? The Jews help to instigate a mob, and the Christians are then accused of turning the world upside down and acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar and saying there is another king, Jesus. They were accused of disturbing the peace, of being traitors, of turning the world upside down. We really could say they're turning the world right side up. But they certainly are proclaiming that there is another king, one higher than Caesar. The record of the first few centuries of church history are largely about this. Largely about Christians getting into trouble because they declare that Jesus is king. This is why they were persecuted. They could have Jesus as a personal Lord and Savior. That'd be just fine. Nobody cared about a personal Lord. Lots of people in the Roman Empire had their own personal gods, their own personal saviors, as it were. 
But when they claimed Jesus is king over all, this is why they were persecuted. This is why they were thrown to the lions. Caesar wanted to keep running the world his way to announce that there is another king here and that even Caesar is obligated to bow to him. Even Caesar must submit to this king. Well, that was going to create trouble. See, when Paul says that Christ is seated above all principality and power and might and dominion, he's not just saying Jesus rules over Caesar, so even Caesar is obligated to bow the knee. We need to understand it's an even bigger claim than that. Yes, it does mean that, and that might be the most obvious application, but more is being said and more is being claimed for Jesus. That language that Jesus is seated above all principality and power, all might and dominion, what does it mean? What are these principalities and powers that Christ now rules over? Well, it's interesting. The principalities and powers are mentioned in numerous places in the New Testament. Uh, some would say, well, they are just civil magistrates and basically just reinforce what I've been teaching. And, and you can't find that view in the New Testament. So, for example, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Be subject to the principalities and powers. Obey magistrates. So it seems there that the principalities and powers are human civil rulers, legitimate state authority, that insofar as Christians can submit to without sinning, they should do so. But some argue that these principalities and powers are, you might say, institutions or cultural forces, cultural trends, cultural influences and in particular the principalities and powers are these institutions or these influences when they have become idolatrous so for example you have money which is good in itself money is a good tool uh, that can be used for godly purposes in itself but when money is idolized when money becomes mammon then it becomes a counterfeit god a rival to god it becomes a power in that sense an idolatrous power the state or a tribe, or a nation, or an ethnic group can become a principality and power in this sense. It can be idolized and it can be turned into something it should not be. A movement, like say the sexual revolution, could be considered a principality and a power in this sense. When ideology becomes idolatry, that's a power. That could be the kind of thing Paul is talking about here. Many isms do work this way. Many ideologies are idolatrous. And of course, we know what can happen with these kinds of influences, these trends, these institutionalized movements, these powers can infiltrate a culture, these powers can nest themselves in the structures of society, and they can bring about corruption, disorder, and death. Certainly the principalities and powers include dark social forces of that sort. Still others would say the principalities and powers are primarily angelic and demonic powers. And this is definitely part of what Paul has in view. In fact, I would say it is the primary thing Paul has in view. We're not given all the information we might wish we had about this. We don't have the complete backstory that explains all that happens in the unseen realm. But what we are told about this unseen realm, about the principalities and powers, is tantalizing. We live in a universe that is both enchanted and haunted. It is enchanted and haunted at the same time. There are angelic and demonic powers constantly intersecting with our world 
Angels and demons interact with each other. They interact with us. They interact with the world all around us all the time. Sometimes people will talk about the natural and the supernatural as if there were two distinct domains, a natural realm and a supernatural realm. And maybe they have something to do with each other. Maybe they don't. But biblically, if we want to look at the cosmos biblically, we have to say, actually, what we would call the natural and the supernatural are actually together part of a single integrated reality. Creation includes seen and unseen powers. In scripture, heaven and earth interface, they interlock, they constantly interact. The cosmos is teeming with principalities and powers, with forces seen and unseen. Now, we know that all principalities and powers were created good in the beginning. Colossians 1 tells us, by Christ, all things were created, things that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. You might wonder, what is Paul talking about there? Whatever these principalities and powers are, they were created by Jesus and for Jesus in the beginning. But we also know from scripture, many of these principalities and powers rebel. They are now fallen and they seek to lead humanity into idolatry and death. They seek to wreak havoc in God's good creation. Sometimes the principalities and powers are referred to in scripture as gods with a small g. When pagans worship their idols, they're generally worshiping principalities and powers, that is, fallen angels or demons that have deceived them and hold them in bondage. The ancient pagans were worshiping demons most of the time. Their gods, were the gods they named, were basically demons that they interacted with in their ritualized services. Uh, sometimes the principalities and powers are referred to as sons of God, and we see that they are members of the heavenly council. Of course, the chief of the fallen principalities and powers is Satan, who is sometimes referred to as the devil. Uh, he is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. That's how Paul refers to him a few verses later. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, unbelievers follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's one reason we know that Paul is talking about these satanic forces when he talks about the principalities and powers in his prayer in chapter one because he goes right on to talk about one of them the chief of them satan himself principalities and powers show up as unclean spirits in the gospels they show up as forces of darkness in ephesians chapter six so you have these demonic forces at work in the world of course we know there are also good angels who do God's bidding, who do God's work in the creation, who minister to God's people, who sometimes deliver messages from God. It's hard for us as secular people to grasp this. The Bible seems so weird at just this point. The view of the cosmos the Bible gives us is fantastical. It is strange, it is beautiful, it is dangerous, it is mysterious. Again, there's much about it that we might wish we were told that we're not. But the hints we're given are really tantalizing. Daniel, in his book, gives us some insight into how the principalities and powers work. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is fasting and praying. He's praying for his nation. And an angel arrives and speaks to him and tells Daniel 
that he would have gotten there sooner, basically, but he was hindered by the prince of Persia until the archangel Michael arrived to help him. And this angel, speaking to Daniel, goes on to talk about how he will go on in his active warfare against the prince of Persia, and soon the prince of Persia will give way to the prince of Greece, that is to say the Greek empire will take the place of the Persian empire on the main stage of world history. These princes the angel is talking about must be angelic, or we could say demonic, and these demonic powers are even associated with particular people groups and geographic territories. Now what is that all about? Somehow, heavenly powers and earthly powers are linked. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, we're told there that God divided up mankind and he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. It's like they were different sons of God, angelic beings, fallen and unfallen, and they were parceled out to different people groups that God formed after Babel. Isaiah 24, we read it this morning, it describes God bringing judgment against evil members of the heavenly council and their earthly counterparts. The prophet says, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of earth on the earth. There's going to be punishment doled out to earthly powers and heavenly powers. Isaiah 14 links the king of Babylon with a member of the heavenly council who sought to exalt himself. He sought to exalt his throne above God's throne. Ezekiel 28 does something similar. It links the earthly king of Tyre to a wicked heavenly entity who also rebelled against God, who exalted himself against God. This is what we need to understand. When we see injustice in human cultures, yes, human sin is involved and humans are responsible for that sin. But we must also recognize the entire realm of human cultural power is also linked to dark demonic powers. And these dark demonic powers hold people in bondage. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. They're the real enemy. Not flesh and blood, the real enemy is found in these demonic forces, these principalities and powers. See, we need to understand the world is not run solely by presidents, prime ministers, and monarchs, or by any other human uh, influencers. There are angelic and demonic thrones and dominions and authorities also at work in our world. These spiritual powers were originally made good to serve God, they were made by God to maintain wise order in his world. They were made in the old creation, you could say, to be tutors to humanity. They were delegated authority in the beginning for God's good purpose. But again, many of them rebelled against God and they became idols. They became false gods, sometimes even accepting worship from humans, other times holding humans in bondage to their own evil desires, and certainly many times Evil angelic powers, so we could say demonic powers, and evil human powers work in concert. Now this means something that, uh, or I think helps explain something that I've said to you many times before. Uh, we're obviously all aware of the so-called culture war that rages all around us. We need to understand the culture war is not just about the culture, and it's not just fought at the human level. The culture war is really also always a spiritual war. If we only think of the culture war in human terms, that is in secular terms, then we will only fight it with human weapons or with secular weapons. And so, for example, we'll think that political activism is the answer. Oh, if we could just elect the right candidate, that would fix our problems. No, 
That's like putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. You can't fix the problem this way. It's not merely a political problem. It goes way deeper than that. It's a spiritual problem. Now, political activism and seeking to get the right candidate elected, those things have their place. I am not saying we should not do those things. That's wonderful. But we need to remember this is really a spiritual war, and it requires spiritual weapons. That's how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6. That's how it's described throughout Scripture. It's a spiritual battle, and we've been given spiritual weapons to fight it. So what are those spiritual weapons? Well, the Word of God. The Word of God is a double-edged sword. We're given the weapon of prayer. We're given psalms and hymns. These are the weapons we use ultimately to push back against the forces of darkness. We charge the gates of hell, Bibles and hymn books in hand. That's how we fight. Satan and his minions will do all they can to hold humanity in bondage, to keep humanity in the dark. And in the old world, in the old creation, Satan was very successful. But Paul is telling us now all of that has changed. Christ has now been exalted far above all principalities and powers. He prays that the Ephesians would know this reality and live accordingly. Obviously, God has always been sovereign over the principalities and powers in an ultimate sense. But God also let them have their way to a large degree in the old creation. So they really could hold the nations for the most part in bondage and in darkness. But now, now Paul tells us Jesus has been exalted over the principalities and the powers. It was always God's plan to put a man on the throne. To put a man at his right hand. To enthrone a man above the principalities and powers. And now the God-man, Jesus, is there. He is that man who rules over the creation, who rules over the principalities and powers. Of course, in the old creation, Israel was supposed to be the exception. The pagan nations might be enslaved by demons. The pagan nations might be in demonic bondage and darkness. But not Israel. Israel would shine like a light. Israel would be a model society, a righteous society, a society filled with joy and peace and love because Israel lives according to Torah. Israel had Torah delivered by good angels to Moses at Mount Sinai. Israel was linked with the good archangel Michael. Israel was given special wisdom beyond the wisdom of the nations. But what do we see again and again in the Old Testament? Israel misuses God's gift of the law. Israel misuses God's gift of wisdom. And so Israel ends up in bondage to the forces of darkness, just like the nations. Israel was supposed to be the the model, the prototype, pointing the way to the solution. Instead, Israel became part of the problem as well. The dark rebellion of the spiritual powers and human powers, of course, came to a climax when Rome and Israel conspired together to crucify Jesus. The rulers of the nations took their stand together against God's anointed. This was the climax of the rebellion of the earthly human powers and the heavenly demonic powers. Who put Jesus on the cross? We could say it was Pilate, the Roman governor, and Herod and Caiaphas, rulers in Israel. That's true. There were certainly visible powers at work in crucifying Jesus, secular human powers. That's true. But other powers were also at work, invisible powers, hidden powers at work behind the scenes, orchestrating Jesus' execution. Again, what do we see? Wicked Forces, wicked human powers and spiritual forces of evil can operate together at the same time in the same event. 
visible and invisible powers can act in concert. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, had the powers of this world known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The powers in view there obviously refers to something beyond and behind the human rulers who orchestrated the crucifixion. Satan and other demonic powers did not know the deeper wisdom of God. They thought they could defeat Jesus and thwart God's plan. But the tables were turned and they didn't see it coming. When they thought they would score their greatest victory, when they thought they had their greatest victory won, it actually turned out to be their downfall. Their, the, we could say this, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians, the weakness of God was stronger than the strength of the powers. The foolishness of God was wiser than the wisdom of the powers. The cross was indeed a paradox. Christ died that he might live. He was humiliated that he might be glorified. He was defeated in order to triumph. Indeed, Christ has conquered the seen and unseen realms through his cross. And so really it's not enough to say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to gain our forgiveness. That's glorious. That's true. We find comfort in that. We build our lives on that reality. But we must also say Jesus died on the cross to defeat the principalities and powers. The cross is about forgiveness, but it's about much more. It is about this cosmic victory that Jesus has won. And Colossians 2 describes it for us. Colossians 2 tells us, on the cross, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us. That's forgiveness. And it says he also disarmed the principalities and powers, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. That's his cosmic victory. See, at the cross, the powers met their match and were overcome. It's ironic, isn't it? The, the very weapon, the powers employed against Christ became their own downfall and defeat. He triumphed over them through the cross. At the cross, he disarmed them and he doomed them. And so he put the powers in their place. That word for triumph that Paul uses in Colossians 2, it actually describes a Roman victory march. After a Roman general would win a battle, he would have a parade and he would take those he had vanquished, those he had conquered, and he would line them up and he would march them down Main Street to show everybody, I have won a great victory. He would march them down Main Street to humiliate those he has defeated. Paul is saying that is what Jesus has done with the powers. Jesus has triumphed over the fallen powers. He's made a spectacle of them. See, the turning point in the story of the Bible is very obviously the death and resurrection of Jesus. But don't just think of Jesus as accomplishing our redemption from sin. There's so much more. Think about the Gospels. The Gospel narratives are really battle stories. They're really war stories, war logs. Jesus is constantly at war in the Gospels, constantly going to war with unclean demonic spirits. He faces demonic temptation. Ultimately, of course, he defeats the demonic realm in his death. And scripture tells us this again and again. Hebrews 2 tells us through his death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John chapter 3 says Jesus, the Son of God, was manifested. Jesus, the Son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He was manifested. He came into this world for this purpose, to destroy the devil and his works. See, the whole Bible from Genesis 3 on is really the story of this spiritual conflict. 
The kingdom of light has now arrived in history and it is driving out the kingdom of darkness, overcoming the kingdom of darkness. And so we, as the people of Jesus, as his disciples, as those who trust in him, we should have full confidence in our salvation and in Christ's victory. And so in Romans chapter 8, at the, 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 the triumphant conclusion to that chapter, Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, not death nor life. Not principalities or powers, not angels or rulers, not things present or things to come. Oh, the powers can try to separate us from God's love. They can try to pry you apart from the love of God, but they will fail. We are secure in the love of God. The, the, the demons, Satan and his minions can do their worst. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, the end will come. He's talking here about the, the final bodily resurrection. He says, Jesus will deliver the kingdom up to the Father when he has subdued all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed shall be death. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is really telling us how history will unfold and then culminate with this resurrection. Jesus will trample death underfoot at the last day when he raises us all from the grave. But in the meantime, what is he doing? The powers are being progressively put down all throughout history. As Christ's reign spreads, as his kingdom grows and advances, the, the, the powers, the principalities and powers are being put in their place. Paul wants us to see this is what God is doing. He wants us to have big hopes, big expectations for what God is doing, not just at the end of history, but even within history. Now you might wonder, if Christ has defeated the principalities and powers at the cross, why are they still active as they so obviously are? How can that be? Ephesians 6 says we have to do battle with the principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. Why does the battle still rage if Christ already won it? Well, remember the promise that started this spiritual war back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3.15 is God's declaration of war. And how will God win this war? He promises to send a seed of the woman, a new Adam. And this Adam will get it right. He will do what the first Adam failed to do. This Adam will go to battle with the serpent. And what will happen to him? His Achilles tendon will be torn. His heel will be bruised, and that's what a bruised heel is. I can tell you from experience, that is a bruised heel, the tearing of the Achilles tendon. But what is he going to do to the serpent? He is going to crush the serpent's head. Now, this is the thing about serpents. This is the thing about snakes. You can kill a snake, and yet it can still writhe about and even bite. Snakes are still dangerous after you kill them. You can decapitate a serpent, and its head is still lethal. It can still bite. A few years back, a chef in China was killed by a dead cobra. The cobra had already been decapitated. He was actually going to use it to make some kind of cobra soup. The snake had already been decapitated, and yet it was able to bite him and kill him. The severed head of the snake was still deadly. There was a man in Texas, I think this was like 2016 or so, you can look these stories up. Uh, he, was, he had killed a rattlesnake, he had decapitated it, he went to dispose of it, and the decapitated rattlesnake bit him, and it took 26 doses of antivenom for him to survive. 
So yes, Satan's head has been crushed. He has been bound. Jesus has trampled his skull under his feet, but he's still dangerous. He's still writhing about, and he can still strike. And so we have a spiritual war to keep fighting. Paul closes out his prayer in verses 22 and 23 by focusing on the church. Because the church is the most obvious manifestation of this victory Jesus has won. And so Paul closes out this prayer by showing us the place of the church in the cosmos. The place of the church in God's purposes, God's plan for the creation, for history. He says Christ is head over all things. Christ is also head over the church Ultimately, what this means, Christ is head over all things for the sake of his church. Christ rules over all things for the sake of his church. Paul goes on, he says, and this is really interesting. He says, the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. That is to say, the church completes Christ. It sounds almost blasphemous to say that Jesus is incomplete without his church. But that seems to be what Paul is saying here. Christ and the church are one. Just like it takes a head and a body to make a whole person, Christ must have his church. He's incomplete without her. Just like the bride and the groom are one flesh, they're incomplete without each other, so Christ is incomplete without his church. The church is the fullness of Christ, even as Christ fills his church. Christ is not fully glorified until his bride is glorified in union with him. And there's a great comfort in this for us as well. Christ has all things under his feet. Christ is head over all things. Why? To what end? For the sake of his church. To guard and protect the well-being of his church. That is Christ's purpose. This is sometimes called ecclesiocentrism because it shows us the centrality of the ecclesia, the church, in God's purposes. Think about this. All that Christ did, all that Christ does, he did and does for his church. Christ rules over all things for the good of his church. That is his purpose. If Christ is king of the cosmos, that means his church is queen of the cosmos. The church is cosmic queen. This is why prayer is a spiritual weapon because the king listens to his queen. And when we pray, we're giving our counsel, our input. We're saying, hey king, this is what we think we ought to do. And the king listens to us again and again. We see this in scripture. Christ will not enter his glory without us. Indeed, he will lavish all his glory on us. A glorious king will most certainly have a glorious queen. And so the church is the apple of his eye. All his love, all his power and strength, it's all concentrated on the church and is for her. If Christ is for us and he rules over all things, it doesn't matter who's against us. Just as a good husband will use his strength, his energy, his gifts to care for his wife, so Jesus does for his bride, the church. And I'll tell you this, when you see that Christ is ruling over all things for the sake of his people, for the good of his church, it really changes your perspective on everything. You realize, for one thing, most of what gets reported in the news is not really newsworthy. It's not really that important. You know, the news obsesses over what politicians are doing and celebrities, and it ignores the church. Jesus would do just the opposite. For Jesus, what really counts, the really important stuff of history is what happens with his people. It's what we do. According to Jesus, we are the history makers. We are the history shapers. World history exists for the sake of the church. 
If you think of history as a stream, the church is the central current in that stream, driving things along. Again, he is head over all things for the sake of his church. Everything he does, he does for us. Here's an example of how it changes our perspective from within the letter of Ephesians. Think about this. Paul is writing this letter from prison. Whose prisoner is he? Who's got Paul locked up? The newspapers would have said Paul is Caesar's prisoner. And that is a sign that Caesar has power over Paul. But in chapter 4, Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. In Paul's way of looking at his imprisonment, he doesn't belong to Caesar. He belongs to the Lord. He's not Caesar's prisoner. Caesar doesn't have power over him. He is the Lord's prisoner. He's there because that's right where Jesus wants him. He can ignore Caesar altogether because he knows Caesar's not in charge. Because Christ has conquered the principalities and powers, Christians never need to hit the panic button. Whether you're looking at circumstances in your own life or what is happening on the national stage or the world stage, know this, Jesus rules. The principalities and powers, visible and invisible, seen and unseen, earthly and heavenly, they're all in his hands and under his control. I would say this, I would say we still very much live in an enchanted world. Angels do God's bidding, they do the Lord's work. Angels are ministering spirits to us, the Lord's people. But the world is no longer haunted. The world's not haunted the way it once was. The cosmos is not haunted the way it used to be because Jesus has exercised it. Jesus is driving the demons out. He's driving out the demonic influence and he's doing it all for the sake of the church. He's doing it all because he has won this victory and he wants us to share in it. That is the good news. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.